Welcome to The Art of Aging, which is part of the Abundant Aging podcast series from the Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging and United Church Homes. On this show, we look at what it means to age in America and in other places around the world with positive and empowering conversations that challenge, encourage, and inspire everyone everywhere to age with abundance. As part of our Aging and Innovation series, we're very pleased to have Max Zamkow on the the, uh, show today, and we're going to be talking about venture capital and age tech. And man, I can't think of a better guest than Max. Max is the managing partner of Third Act Ventures. That's an age tech-specific venture firm where he invests in founders working to change the way that we age. He also serves as the editor-in-chief of Age Tech News, which is the only complete source of fundings, exits, and opportunities in the world of Age Tech. And because he has a singular focus on Age Tech, Max is able to support and empower visionary entrepreneurs to accelerate the pace of innovation in aging and make the world a much better place for us as we all age. So welcome, Max. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I'm going to start with a question we ask a lot of people on the podcast. I mean, you could be putting your talents into a lot of different areas. You could be doing venture capital in sports drinks or oil and gas. Or Why are you so passionate about the world of aging and age tech? Sure. For me, like many entrepreneurs, you know, it originally stemmed from a personal experience. And then, you know, the combination of being able to both do good and make money was quite enticing. So, you know, going back almost 13 years ago now, I was living out on the West Coast where I am now. My grandmother was living on the East Coast. My whole family's from there. And she just reached that point in her life where she couldn't live by herself anymore. My grandfather had passed away. The house she was in was too big. She was all by herself. She had a couple falls, you know, all the things that happen to us generally as we get older. And, you know, finally... You know, my father and his siblings, my aunts and uncles, they like hit their breaking point. They said to my grandmother, you know, we're too worried about you. We have to find you somewhere safer, better for you to live. Let's start looking at facilities. So they started that process. They looked at a bunch of facilities up and down the East Coast. One near my uncle in Massachusetts moved her in and were excited. They were happy or at least relieved that like finally she would they would not have to worry as much. There'd be care all around her. They'd be taking good care of her. She'd also have like friends around to be able to have this community, be doing all these things. They were very hopeful. But what actually happened was quite the opposite. She just really struggled to connect and she really struggled to settle, really. As soon as she walked in those doors, she just became a shell of herself. She basically stopped eating, stopped sleeping, wasn't like engaging with anyone. It was really jarring and so different than how she lived the rest of her life. And I could tell just from a phone call how bad it was. And that's when I jumped into action. You know, Back then, my whole world was mobile. This was when the mobile revolution was just kind of getting going. I was in working in early stage startups as an engineer, CTO, founder, all in mobile. And so I started looking around for ways that I could help from afar. And since my world was mobile, and because mobile changed the way that we interact with computers to the point where they don't come with 100-page manuals anymore, like toddlers, I have a 16-month-old at home, She knows how to use my phone. It's really impressive. In my mind, there was no reason why my grandmother 
couldn't be using it too, even though she wasn't very good with technology, unsurprisingly. So I started looking around for things, you know, where's the app for my grandma or the app for the staff or nurses to help take care of her, help do something, and was just really surprised at the lack of anything. There was really nothing that existed. And that really saddened and frustrated me. And as I continued my entrepreneurial journey and started to try to figure out what to do next after my last startup, I checked back, back in on this field of age tech and saw more happening, which was good. But the more that I dove in, the more I realized that you know the two biggest impediments were just not enough entrepreneurs building for the space. And for those that were, very few, if any, sources of early stage capital to help them get off the ground. And in addition to that, I saw, you know, the population aging. Um, I saw how there was certainly opportunity for venture capital scale companies to do well here. And so the combination of all three of those made me decide to jump in headfirst. Quite a story. And, you know, I mean, that, that mimics so, so, so many of the entrepreneurs that I think we see in this space, which is that passion, that personal experience driving the need for change. And it's very purposeful work too, isn't it? You know, you really feel like you're, you're helping people with this. And when was Third Act first established, Max? So I made my first investment in the space somewhere around like seven-ish years ago. You know, the name, I think I started using it somewhere closer to like five to six years ago, maybe. I was using a different name while I figured out what the right term for this industry was. We were, didn't call it age tech back then. We were, I was trying to coin like silver tech was better than what was before, which was like elder tech or Jaren tech, both of which were bad. Yeah. And then I finally had this epiphany. I'm like, okay, like third act, like that's something that people are not offended by. I think it kind of nicely describes what we're investing in. So that's kind of where it was born. Yeah, and you've got quite a few investments. You know, I, I, for any of us, for any of the uh, listeners that are just purely listening and can't see Max right here, you know, we can see a lot of the organizations that he's investing in behind him. We've got, uh, but yeah, just <laughs> and, and this is this is October of 2023 that we're recording this session here. So I see things like Parasuite, I see Kobu, I see Care, I see Labrador, which a lot of people are talking about. I, I also want to just uh, say that this is a great lesson for people in logo design because these are the ones that I can read fairly easily behind you. So just a word. Some of them you can't. So yeah, they don't get mentioned on the podcast. They should think about that next time. It's like, like people who design flags, but they put like words on the flags and slogans, and it, basically it's like reading a postage stamp. But, but, yep. but you know, there, I, there's, there's really a variety of, of things in, uh, you know, there. I mean, just from the different types of solutions, and I want to get into that in a second. But just for people that may be new to the venture capital space, I think it's fair to say that you would you're investing in early stage companies. Can you let us know just mm -hmm. how are companies typically categorized when it looks when it comes to venture capital investment? Sure. Typically they're categorized by, you know, what their last round of funding was and who it was from. You now you hear things like pre-seed, seed, series A, series B, and again that relates to how much funding they raised and not how much so much as like how many rounds. The way that I think about it in the early stage is that there's really like, you know, there's an idea on a napkin stage. There's like that time between on a napkin and your building and launching. 
Then there's, you know, post-launch and everything after. Um, so, you know, idea in a napkin is like just starting, call yourself a, you're nothing at that point. You're just an idea. You're an idea stage. After that, up until you launch, you're kind of a pre-seed. And then once that seed has started sprouting, once you've launched, then that makes you a seed company. And then comes all this series A is like, after you've launched, you've gotten some early traction. And now you can go out and raise generally nowadays, it's between like five to $10 million. Series B is then the one after that, which is generally 10 to 20, 25. And then CDE, just keep going like that. So that's generally how they categorize. Uh, in my world, I really just care about that seed. That's where generally where we invest, which is where the product is launched. And they might just have a couple customers. It could just literally be two pilots turned customers that we can talk to. And I suspect that you must get at least one company a month coming to you saying, hey, Max, I've got a great idea. I'm joking. I'm sure you can have like one a minute coming to you saying, I was going to say one a month that I would not be doing a very good job on my deal flow. If I was only getting one a month, uh, one a minute is, is closer. That would be a little intense, but somewhere in between. Yeah. Sure. But I, but, but, you know, there's a lot of folks out, out there that would love to get some face something like you. And, and I think that, that, that part of this podcast is really meant to provide some guidance to those entrepreneurs. These are, and you know, I work with a lot of them. We, we, I'm, I'm always happy to talk with, with folks that, that have these ideas because it really does come from the heart. And we are, to your earlier point, just facing this huge future state of need with the growth. I mean, I look at every single problem that, that the solutions behind you are looking to address. And I'm just thinking in 10 years, we're going to have 10 times the number of people that are going to be exposed to those problems. And so, you know, so, so between the economic promise, and then also the purposeful aspect of this, it's just this kind of this wonderful kind of place to, 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 to land. But I'm sure that, you know, there are things that, that, that pique your interest. There are things that you're, that, that may, you say, may say no to right off the bat. I mean, from, in, in your mind, you know, what are the things that make a project investable to you? That's a really good question. Again, I will preface this by saying that every investor is different. We're like snowflakes. Everyone looks for something different. Even other seed stage investors may look for slightly different things. But there are some general things that all VCs need to see. You know, those things really pertain to the opportunity size, the market, and the scalability of your solution or potential of a solution. You know, you need to remember that VCs are also companies in themselves and they have their own investors. They are kind of startups. And so they have a responsibility to return money to their investors in a certain time frame. So there are many companies that have been very successful that were bigger than many VC companies that took longer and that's perfectly fine. But VCs need to return money to their investors. That way we can raise another round and invest in more companies. So the biggest things are, again, making sure that the market is big enough. You know, VCs invest in incredibly risky companies and they fully expect to lose money on most of them. 
They expect most of them to return basically nothing. And, but they do need a few of them to basically hit like a out of the park home runs. Like they have to be grand slams. They call them fund returners because one investment returns the entire amount of capital. And if not more that you raise from your investors, which is kind of crazy. So every company that a VC invests in has to have the potential to do that. Most of them don't make it, but they have to have that potential. Otherwise it's not even worth taking a swing at it. So they have to be able to return the fund. Billion dollar companies are sometimes bigger depending on the size of the fund. The second one is scalability because it has to do that in a certain time frame. You know, general VC funds are about 10 years long. Depending on when the VC invests in you, that it could be eight years from the end of that. It could be if it's right at the beginning of full 10. And But they need to return that amount of capital by the end of that. And so a company that takes 20 years to build, that's too long for, for a VC. VCs need to exit quicker. 10 years can be a long time. It can also be a short time. So the company has to be able to you know, reach that point where they can return the fund and they have to be able to scale there within 10 years. And, and really, it's probably closer to six years in order for it to make sense for VCs. At, again, like lots of other options to finance companies, many companies very successful Without VC funding, you know, there's this phrase that VCs like to use, which is that they sell rocket fuel. They don't sell jet fuel, which is also pretty fast. They don't sell regular fuel. It's rocket fuel. And if you take VC money, you need to know that you are along that ride and that's how you're going to get pushed. And you need to, in many cases, kind of go for broke, um, which is kind of a nuts way to build a business. But obviously, it is successful for some. Absolutely. And I'm thinking now about just the, you know, I'm seeing Max, you're starting your day, you're getting on the computer, you've got a bunch of decks to go through. And let's talk a little bit about maybe just the presenting the idea for a second. You know, we've had, we've had, we've had your colleague, Tessara Thomas on the show, we've had Amy Miller on the show, and we picked up some things about, you know, don't, you know, you don't need to tell me, you don't need to put the baby boomer age wave slide in the deck. I, I know the baby boomer age wave side. You know, I know that you're going to put a competitive grid on on there, and you're going to be in the top right hand corner of that grid. You know, or you may think you don't have competition, and, and guess what? Maybe maybe you haven't worked hard enough. Are there any sort of things that come to mind that you like? You see these decks, and it's like, oh my gosh, why are you doing this? Or I wish you would have said that. Are there any just presenting the idea in general? You know, I don't get as upset as maybe others when These like they, when they the say I'm the baby no a- i know it, they are just things listen i understand that you know fundraising is a numbers game and it means you need to send that deck out to a lot of people so in some ways it needs to be general enough to work for even investors that may not know the space so putting in a slide that talks about the 10,000 baby boomers turning 65 every day in america perfectly fine you know, I'd say the biggest faux pas that I see it are companies that don't first explain the actual problem that they're solving and the magnitude of it. You know, they kind of jump into their solution or the team, which is fine, but what exactly are you doing and like how important is it? Like, sure, you use AI in 
you know, electronic health records, but so what? Like what, that doesn't mean anything to me. Like what is that actual problem that you're solving using that AI and how big of a problem is it? So you can talk about 10,000 baby boomers turning 65 every day. That's great. But what problem are you solving for them or the solving a problem that is caused by that population change? Um, so that's, you really need to hook an investor initially with, you know, a problem that they can understand and a size that's big enough. And again, that comes down back to what we were just talking about, market size. Um, you need to hook them on that, the fact that this is a, a big problem and there's a big opportunity in solving it. And you know what's coming into my head now, Ben, is, is this sort of that human-centered design principle of, of falling in love with the problem before you, you, you come up with a solution, right? And I guess it's, do you generally find that those that, that do lead with the problem that really do fully understand how to fall in love with that problem generally come up with better solutions? Yes, but not necessarily right away. Um, okay. Because often it's the first solution that you come up with is often not the best solution. And people that are in love with the problem instead of loving their solution are willing to entirely scrap, remake, try a version two of the solution, which you know generally you get improve every time you try something and you're improving because of you know feedback from individuals, from the market, from changes in regulatory landscape, whatever it is, you know, versus people who are in love with their solution and don't listen to, you know, their customers or, or what's happening. And so they make one solution and in all likelihood, the probability of an individual coming up with the perfect solution their first time is really small. But if the probability of one person coming up with the best solution, trying a hundred times, that's much more likely. So it's not about, you know, someone's design sense or knowledge of the problem that first out that really separates them initially. It's whether they're willing to listen to what is happening, listen to the market and be willing to totally remake their product. You know, one company in the portfolio that literally just did that is CareSwitch. They literally like remade their entire product years into it because they realized that what they needed was different and the way that they needed to build it for particularly this new AI revolution to take advantage, they had to totally scrap the previous product and rebuild it. Right. And what has emerged is really exciting and strong. And, you know, companies do this all the time. You know, they entirely scrap a product and rebuild it. You think of like Apple and Steve Jobs, the amount of times that he tried to like eat his own product, you eat your own company. That's kind of how companies stay on the cutting edge. And again, we are recording this in October of 2023. We talk about the market dynamics, things, AI revolution, all these new things that are affecting change in the market. But when we're talking about, you know, this world of age tech, you know, what are you particularly fascinated by these days? What are you curious about right now? I, I'll tell you the, the thing that I'm excited about or excited to see kind of how it plays out is really the 
value-based care and the different ways it's coming about. The one that's really interesting and novel or we're still figuring out is how value-based care and seniors housing can play together. You know, I, I will be honest, when I first entered this field, I thought that seniors housing was part of the care continuum. Like I thought that's why people like my grandmother moved into a facility is because they needed more like medical care and that was being provided at an assisted living facility. Didn't realize that's not actually the case, but now it seems like we're starting to get there. And it makes sense because senior housing providers, they are providing care. It may not be traditionally medical as you know we previously defined, but now that we finally admit that all these other things, we call them social determinants of health, affect our health, lifespan, health span, like that is, those are things that senior housing providers are affecting, food, heating, transportation, community, all these things. And you know why shouldn't they be participating in these value-based care arrangements? If they can help keep an individual healthy longer, they should be benefiting from that. And there should be, you'd think that the health insurer would provide that incentive. So I'm really excited to see how that is enabled, how it plays out, how we're able to make that work. Just like anything, I'm sure there will be some failed attempts. That's kind of how innovation happens. And and thank you for that. Now, you're obviously you know speaking my language here for where we sit here at United Church Homes. We know that us and our peers, especially in the nonprofit housing space, have just been for decades just through just know-how, just through know-how experience have been just keeping so many people out of the hospital and supporting people in a very person-centered, holistic way. And yes, I think that we are at the stage that we, we can get our due, and it's a very exciting time to be in, in this industry. So thank you for that recognition. Are, is there anything that you think has been overdone in HTAC? You know, too many solutions out there, or you know, maybe just limited new cuts on the solution that, that, that may not make it worthwhile for another entrant? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that everyone, anyone thinks of when their parent falls which is often how many people start to think about this space is like, oh, like if they were wearing a smart watch or a smart wearable, then like they wouldn't have been on the floor for so long, or maybe it could have predicted before they were going to fall and could have stopped it. I can't tell you how many smart watches I've seen. You know, a few weeks ago, I was at Aging 2.0's Optimized Commerce in Louisville. It was as there were multiple there. I was just at Health last week. There were lots. And there are lots of smart watches. They all do basically the same thing. And they don't really solve the big challenge that smart watches wearables have, which is that generally people don't want to wear them. And older adults especially don't really want to wear them because they don't like being tracked. It's the same reason why they don't want to wear a life alert pendant. You know, less than like 1% of the people who would actually benefit from it end up using a life alert because every time they put it on, they're you know basically admitting to the world that they are old and frail. And I don't care how old and frail you actually are. That's not how you want to be made to feel every day not to mention all the challenges with charging and remembering to put it on and 
yeah, so don't need more smartwatches. Or maybe we just need the one that actually people want to wear. You can figure that out. That's great. I think the best one we have right now is the Apple Watch. Right. Or one of, I mean, like the best fall detection or fall, yeah, I guess, detection device we have or like Life Alert is, you know, an iPhone, is a smartphone. Sure. Because that's something that everyone, including grandma, grandpa, older adults, want to have in their pocket. And that's generally what they have in their pocket. And you can use that to call people if you fall. So that, you know, the most successful ones are probably out there already. You need to be doing something a little bit more unique and different. You know, I want to get into this idea of maybe just, you know, platform solutions versus uh, individual solutions when it comes to aging, you know, age tech. I think one of the, one of the critiques I've heard is that there's a lot of, it's very fragmented right now. You know, you have a, you know, it's a, you know, you've got, you know, fall detection solution, or you may have another type of monitoring device, or you may, if I wanted to put together a, a holistic set of solutions, I'll have to cobble it together from five or six different vendors. And, you know, and we're seeing platforms getting developed, particularly, you know, online engagement platforms, content platforms, lots of different things can hang off of that. But do you, would you agree that the, the, the space is too fragmented? I would not agree that it's too fragmented. It is fragmented. But, you know, that's also in many ways a good thing. Like there are platforms out there that, try to do everything. You know, generally that's like the point click care. And there are a few others too that have an EHR and have a CRM and have a this and a that. And most people don't that use point click care, those solutions only use a very small subset of the features because they're all average. Like if you try to do everything, we call that in VC boiling the ocean, you're not going to do any one of those things very well. And certainly not many of them at the same time. So you're kind of in that search for, you know, that single unified platform, you're sacrificing expertise, essentially, you're you're sacrificing quality, and you're willing to live with mediocrity. And listen, if that works for you, more power to you, that's great. But if you want to work with the best solutions, you need to find people who focus just on that. Just like, you know, if you're surrounding yourself with a team, are you going to surround yourself with one person who knows everything kind of okay, or a bunch of experts who are all experts in their particular field, right? And it's exactly the same. And, And yes, like it would be easier if you could combine the best in class of everything into one unified platform, like what a dream, right? You have this, I mean, again, back to this team analogy, like you have this one right-hand person who just does everything from accounting to sales to, you know, your personal assistant to cleaning the floors. Like, yes, it would be wonderful um, if you could just hire one person to do it all. But that's just not how things work. And no one person would be able to do all of that at that level. So you need to use many solutions, many people, if you want to be the best. And again, like, I think people fall in love with that dream of like, it would be nice if it was just one, like, sure it would, but it also like, that's not a viable solution. It's not a viable option for most. Yeah. And, and you know what, what comes to my mind now, Max, is that, you know, when I see these type, you know, I see, see multi, you know, like, 
products with 100 features to them, oftentimes they'll add those features because a competitor has it and they want to have parity. Mm-hmm. And what seems to get lost is, is going back to that idea of falling in love with the problem. You know, it's like, you know, what are, I have a system that can do 100 things, but for me and, or this particular customer, what are the two or three things they do most often? And how did you optimize the solution so th- those things are really easy? I mean, typically, if somebody works in that, I find that if somebody works from that mindset, I find that the UX is a lot cleaner, it's simpler, it's more intuitive. Mm-hmm. And that's the product I'd like to use, right? Yeah, agreed. And you need to not only think from that direction, but also like going out and watching people use that and interviewing people using exactly that. And only by doing that and really focusing on that one piece of the problem or one problem can you really become an expert and make a UI that is so clean and easy to use. And again, you try to do that for everything and you're only going to get a little bit of info on everything and everything's going to kind of get jumbled. No, let's turn just to, 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 you know, because no one's ever done a podcast on AI before. So I want us to be the first one. But when you think about okay. AI, <laughs> as you think about AI as a disruptor, where do you think, where do you think the application of AI may offer the most benefits or the most surprises when it comes to age checks? That's a good question. I think on the benefit side, really, we think we're going to at least initially see the biggest benefit coming in any kind of form, filling out data, input, as well as kind of complex scheduling and rescheduling. These are things that AI can do really well. You know, you give it, you know, you say you have a hundred people schedules and a whole bunch of people that need care. AI could pretty quickly figure out like how, what the different best arrangements are. And you can even change the parameters in there depending on, you know, how you want to rank, whether it's more important that someone sees the same person more or just that you minimize distance. Like AI is way better at that than someone looking at some gigantic Excel sheet of like a hundred people. Like there's no way that a human can do that nearly as well as a computer. So I think we're seeing it there. And the other place, again, is anywhere you need to fill out forms. If you're filling out forms, whether it's for Medicare reimbursement or government regulatory forms or EHR, I think we're going to see AI, and we already are starting to see it be able to kind of take is just a free form visit, a recording of whatever the interaction was and pre-populate a lot of that. I think we're still going to want people checking it for a while, but it's going to take out a lot of that kind of manual busy work that, you know, for doctors, that's all the charting that now they do at home and allow people to focus on the actual interaction, the care, uh, which is, I think, wonderful. Yeah. And I, I would tend to agree with you because I know that at least in the work that, that, we, that uh, we do regular assessments with our residents, with our clients, I don't want my person having to just type into something the entire time. And we already are seeing this in medical transcription. I think, yeah, there's a number of you know, the solutions there. It, is, it seems to be becoming common practice in, in medical transcribing that you're no longer 
sending this transcription to a third-party service to interpret coming back. The AI is essentially you know, doing that for you. And I think that you know, to we had we had Victor Wang on the podcast as well, and I, I love what he says about you know, geriatrics is all about complexity, and AI is tends to be good at making sense of, of complex things. And as I recall, you know, there's a number of these assessments out there. Like there's ones for fall risk, for social isolation, for social determinant needs, for engagement. But they're all they all seem to be siloed. And I, you know, and I'm hoping that AI will have the power to kind of crosswalk between the two, so that we can say things like, you know, I fell, I fell because, or or I'm more, de- you know, I'm, I'm feeling more depressed. I'm depressed because I fell last week, where those two things might have been separate. Now you can combine them together, and there might be some really in- intriguing new insights that can come from cross-walking all those, all those data points. I'm not sure if you're seeing the same thing or if you're seeing companies out there that, that, that really do get more into kind of the slicing and dicing of social determinant. Or- I'm not sure I'm seeing anything in terms of like really being able to cross-pollinate that well, although I think that'll happen. What I think we are seeing are tools that will help prompt these responses. If like, say you haven't gotten the information or there's a follow-up piece that like maybe given something that they said, you need to ask that you didn't or didn't realize. And so instead of having to, you know, have a follow-up phone call or visit, like it can just say, Hey, like, you know, Mrs. X said that they're not feeling great you know, ask if they've been taking their new meds or, you know, if they have been skipping meds or or whatever it is that can make it much more natural and make the process more smooth. I really like this idea of the AI being able to make these more conversations instead of like question, answer, like form filling out. It's important that we have standardized assessments because otherwise, how can you really understand the difference between one person's risk and another? However, it's not a natural way to converse and really to uh, connect with someone is through like filling out some standard form, whereas having conversation about it can really uh, change the dynamic and change that interaction in a way that feels so different, particularly to the recipient and the carer themselves, I mean, really create that bond, which is what, you know, we're so many are trying to do in the senior care space is, you know, we talk about how caring is so personal. And I'm really excited about how AI can kind of help bring that back in many ways, especially to all these tests and everything else. And especially for us in the in, in the senior housing and senior care space where our differentiator versus the medical world is so often the trust we build with people so they can open up. We can have those conversations. Adding in a formality to that just, just takes us back a step. So I share that same aspiration. Mm-hmm. Hope that will be adopted. Max, you've been very generous with your time. I, I just thank you so much for the advice and, and for the perspectives that you're giving myself and our listeners. And we do like to end our podcasts with three questions about your personal experience with, with aging. And I hope it's okay if I ask these of you. Of course. I mean, if everyone does it, I can't say no, can I? I say no. No, you're forced to. Okay. You can't turn your computer <laughs> off. But before we get into that, where can people find you? Yeah, LinkedIn's a great way. 
Um, I'm trying to be more active there. You know, for more on Third Act, you can go to our website, thirdact.vc. And then also the other place to follow along is agetech.news. And again, that's our monthly email newsletter that chronicles all the financings, exits, et cetera, in agetech. Anyone that wants to learn more about this space, what's going on, you know, financings and acquisitions are a good proxy for kind of what's working and what things are hot. So it's definitely a pretty good thing to be following along with. Very good. So that's agetech.news. And thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're getting into our three questions. Okay, we got question number one. Max, when you think about how you've aged, what do you think has changed about you or grown with you that you really like about yourself? Sure. I mean, for me, the biggest one is just being more comfortable in my own skin. And, um, you know, for those that are listening on the audio version, you don't see, but I am a redhead. Uh, not only am I a redhead, but I spent, you know, half of my childhood from 10 to 18 in the UK, which was really interesting. But it meant that I stood out even more. So I sounded different. I looked different. And, you know, as a teenager, all you want to do is fit in. And I really struggled, unsurprisingly, with that. And one of the best things about growing older, how I've changed, is how I've just gotten much more comfortable being myself and looking like myself and not really caring so much what other people think. That's awesome. At least Thank on that front. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And then the second question is, what has surprised you the most about you, this page? I think the most surprising part is just how emotional I am and continue to be. You know, you think of this traditional stereotypical model of particularly being a man is like you start as a child and you are emotionally of tantrums and then you grow up and you're kind of stoic and nothing moves you. Now, fortunately, I think that paradigm, we've been busting through it a lot in these last, you know, few decades, which is good. You know, real men do cry. It's okay. I, <laughs> and I, it surprised me how often I do it. Especially now, as I said, I have a 16-month-old at home, Maya, and it's silly, but it's amazing how often I just like tear up. I can't tell you. I went to this class of hers that she'd had. She was like this toddler sound and experience class. It was nothing, right? She did this for like five weeks. I went to the last one. All they did was like sing and clap and it was fun. But, you know, I went to this and the teacher said, all right, like all, you're all going to get your graduation certificates. And at the beginning of class, I'm rolling my eyes. It's like graduation certificate for doing what? Right. Exactly. And then at the end, the teacher comes around and gives us this envelope and I look at it and I literally just start bawling. Like, fortunately, I was wearing sunglasses, but so filled with emotions, like, I don't know, like. Maya's growing up and I'm so proud of her, but mm -hmm. objectively, subjectively, I'm like, what am I, what is going on here? Like, this doesn't make any sense. So it's definitely been quite surprising. Very cool. Thank you so much for sharing that, that story. That's awesome. And then our third question, is there someone that you've met 
or someone that's been in your life that has set a good example for you in aging, like someone that's inspired you to, you know, as we say at United Church Homes, age with abundance? So there is, a few years ago, I was lucky enough to meet Gary Player, the golfer, and he is an absolutely incredible person and an incredible model for aging and how just the way that he has continues to approach life you know he had a very challenging upbringing grew up in south africa and challenging times and there are a lot of things that could have stopped him early in his childhood midlife and then getting older yet he still every year is at the masters hitting that opening shot and he dominates the other guys that he hits with because he is just making sure that as he ages that he stays active. He is just absolutely amazing. And I feel very fortunate that I, I got to meet him. That's very cool. Max, and thank you very much for lending your time to us. We're very privileged to have had you on the show. And most importantly, thank you to our listeners. Thank you for listening to this episode to The Art of Aging, which is part of the Abundant Aging podcast series from the Ruth Frost Parker Center and United Church Homes. And we want to hear from you. What are some of the age tech ideas that, that you have in your head? What's most compelling to you? Who has inspired you to age with abundance? And really, what ideas do you have for topics on this show? We want to hear from you. So visit us at www.abundantagingpodcast.com to share your ideas. You can also give us feedback when you visit the Ruth Cross Parker Center website at unitedchurchhomes.org slash Parker Center. And reminding everyone to check out Max and Third Act Ventures, especially subscribing to the Age Tech News at agetech.news. Again, thank you for listening. We will see you next time.